Welcome to the Weird Warriors podcast. I am Max. I am Rich. And on this podcast, we will be focusing on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. On this episode in particular, we're going to be taking a look at Weird War Tales number 43. But first, Rich has some retroactive history for you. The Billy Ireland Cartoon Library and Museum is on the Ohio State University campus and was initially founded with material supplied by OSU alumni and cartoonist great Milt Kenneth. I stopped by in July on my way to Dayton to visit my Korean War vet father-in-law. Everything from Courier Knives to Bill Watterson is on display, as is original comic art by Jack Kirby, Frank Miller, Todd McFarlane, and many many others. It's a tiny amount of their archives. Uh, appointments can be made in their reading room and specific items can be pulled by their archivists for review. Yeah, like this isn't something I'm going to do the next time I go out to Ohio for more than a long weekend. <laughs> I talked to a member of their staff about acquiring Sam Glansman's collection and I still haven't had a chance to talk to Sue about it. Uh, you know, she would like to get some money for it, but if the option is donating something to a art museum or having it thrown away we all know which direction she's going to go with that yeah we could have one hell of a road warriors episode coming up folks stay tuned and the next time you're in columbus dot 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 moving on to the intel report uber script by kieran gillen art by Kanan white i probably slaughtered both of those but whatever published by avatar press beginning in 2013 April 24th, 1945. The world holds its collective breath as the war is only days away from ending. Russian troops move through Germany to the final objective, Hitler himself. As those around the mad dictator crumble, the much ridiculed threats of the Wunderwaffen materialize. A new weapon is delivered, one with unstoppable power. A weapon like no other and with a madman pulling the trigger. The Ubers changed the direction of World War II, providing a dark and uncompromised alternate reality in a way that you've never seen. German super soldiers. Posting this one was really overdue, which is only fair because it took me entirely too long to start picking these up anyway. The complete run is available in a five-book slipcase set on Amazon, which is you know, how I got it. Uber led to a follow-up series, Uber Invasion, where the fighting comes to the United States. I was able to collect the first seven issue story arc, but after that, printing numbers really dropped off. The 21 issue series was placed on hiatus at issues 17 and 2018. Uh, Gillen posted last year his continuing desire to finish the series. Here's hoping that he does so. This stuff is pretty freaking good. Yeah, you got to wonder if uh, a more modern day evil has intervened, uh, like the um, company Uber might have something to say about that if they even cared enough. And, you know, who's to say who's more evil? <laughs> the super-powered Nazis or the people that have destroyed the taxi industry? I don't know. Anyway, with the Intel report and the retroactive history taken care of, we're going to take a little break to do a little podcast promo for another awesome show. And when we get back, we'll take a look at the issue at hand. Do you like comics? The 1960s? How about middle-aged gay couples gossiping about their neighbors? Then you'll love Checkered Past. A loving examination of DC's GoGo Check branded comic magazines published from February 1966 to August 1967. I'm Dr. Bob. And I'm Dr. Husband. And each week we'll be your hosts on a trippy tour through mid-century four-color madness. Checkered Past. Available wherever fine podcasts are downloaded for free. We're back. So, with break out of the way, we're going to take a look at Weird War Tales number 43. And Rich is here standing by with the cover detail. Well, actually, I'm sitting down, but hey, you know, cover price 25 cents. <laughs> You're all week trying to deal. Art by Ernie Chan. The red Weird War Tales rests on a black cover under the Line of DC Superstars banner. A skull wearing a pickle-hulled helmet sideways peers over the edge of a red and yellow chessboard. 
American and German soldiers are chess pieces attacking each other. Two U.S. pieces are knocked over, and a skeletal hand reaches out to make his next move. Cover date, November, December, 1975. Date of release, August 12th, 1975. No Killjoy. Max, take it away. All right. Comments and commendations on this cover. Uh, in my opinion, a very effective and iconic cover it is. The concept does a great job of communicating the theme of the series, and the execution is very clear without sacrificing a sense of style. For example, I'm not sure about the anatomy of those hand bones, but the skeletal chess player is rendered as though it exists in a less defined reality than the human pieces on the board. So it all ends up working together to drive home the sense of eerie unreality about the proceedings. This one could easily be held up as an answer to What's this series all about? I really like the way Ernie Chan portrays this cover. The black nothingness behind the skeleton, the casualness of his sideways helmet, and the comparative roughness of the skeleton as compared to the pieces on the game board really pulls you in. And hey, although the game pieces are set in World War II, the player appears to be a World War I German. Is that why the two fallen pieces are American? It certainly looks like he's reaching for another GI. Good start. All right. So before we dive into the first story in the issue, we have a very cool something we haven't seen in a while. A very cool introductory page, a single page setting up the issue. It's been a bit. Script for this one is by Paul Levitz. Art is by our good buddy Jerry Taleok. Synopsis of this really cool page, spoilers for my CNC, goes like this it's a direct cover link. We've got a one-eyed skeletal narrator in a U.S. uniform moving a U.S. soldier chess piece across a huge game board that also has tanks, artillery, and soldiers from another time and place on it. The background is that of a war-ravaged home. The narrator says, Life is a chess game, and who better to play it than death, the eternal warrior? But perhaps I'm being a bit of a pig. After all, I forgot to invite you to join me in my game. Sit down, reader, and brave the battlefields of the weird war. Rich says there's no killjoy. I believe him. And for my CNC, I'll say we got yet another iconic image right after the cover that could easily represent the entire series to a newcomer. You know, and the direct link to the cover concept, as we mentioned, is very much appreciated. Not as common as you would think. <laughs> it's rare that something does that inside a comic book. Everything about this page, in my opinion, is just perfect. The slapdash nature of the encampment in which our skeletal host has set up his game table, the pieces on the board from various eras of conflict, and the box of extra pieces awaiting play in the foreground, not to mention the overall incredibly atmospheric rendering by our beloved Jerry T. And of course, the kicker of it all is how well the perspective is set up to make you feel like you're observing the panel from a first-person viewpoint, about to decide whether to sit in that invitingly positioned chair. I almost don't want to read any further for fear of ruining the vibe. Yeah, Max is, you know, Pretty much said all I need to say, so I'm just going to add my two bits and say intro page by Jerry Kalayak. Yes, please. Haven't had one of these in a while. Good start continues. And I guess I'll go first because, you know, I know Max has staked a pretty hard claim to the sec to the story after this. So bulletproof six pages. Script by Jack Olick. Art by first timer Vic Geronimo. And as luck would have it, it's the only time as well. Synopsis. Corporal Okada has a nightmare dream of death in a cave on Okinawa. But the dream changes, and before him appears the spirit of an ancient Shinto priest. You dream because you fear to die, and yet you dream for nothing. For it is written, death shall find you. I tell you this, your death will not, will not come from a bullet. Okada is awakened when a soldier yells that the Americans were attacking again. 
The Americans had attacked their position for weeks with no success. During the fighting that follows, Okada is shot in the chest and sent sprawling. He should be dead, but incredibly, the bullet had struck the cigarette case that Okada had kept over his heart. The attack ends as fast as it had started, and, Cap and Okada's captain orders the survivors to hurry to reinforce the airstrip. Enemy Marines whittle down their numbers, but most of them make it to the bunker at the airfield. In Okada's exhausted dream that follows, he sees the Shinto priest again. Hugh, you came back. You know how my life was saved. Yes, have I not told you? All men must die, and so must you. But you will die at home, in your own bed. An explosion outside rouses Okada. A shell had wounded the captain. If he stayed out there in the barrage, he'd die for certain. Over the cries of one of his fellow soldiers to come back that nothing could live out there, Okada runs into the heavy shell fire and throws the wounded man over his shoulder. No bullet could kill him, after all. But just as Okada returns to the bunker, shrapnel tears into one of his legs. He stumbles and falls inside. Okada was a hero, and days later, restricted to a bed, he's awarded a medal for gallantry in the service of the god emperor Hirohito. But he doesn't understand when he's stretched to a plane leaving the island. You've done enough, the colonel tells him. This plane is probably the last of ours that will ever leave this island. The rest of us may die, but you at least shall live. You've earned that right. Goodbye and good luck. Okada returns home to his loved ones, and the words of the Shinto priest crowd his thought. All that he had said is true. The days and weeks pass like a dream, and safe in his bed he gives thanks. No bullet could kill him, and none had. But the shuttered darkness of his room abruptly disappears in a blinding flash of light. The world explodes, and Okada barely has time to wonder what that light could possibly be before he wonders no more. The Shinto priest had kept his word. Okada had died in bed, at home, in a city that goes by the name of Hiroshima. Killjoy! The Americans owned the air over Okinawa proper during the battle. No way whatever that Japanese plane is supposed to be would be able to sneak out without being shot down. I also question whether the Bushido code would permit him to leave. You're wounded? That's nice. Here's some band-aids and the two hand grenades. Go get them! Also, page four, panel four. Okada runs out into American shellfire to save the captain because no bullet could kill him. Um, that's that's shellfire, not bullets. Uh, huge potential loophole there, Pally, for your spectral priest to cover for. <laughs> Comments and commendations. Another, yay, I survived the war. What's that B-29 doing? Story. Also, the first story in these pages from the perspective of the Japanese. And for me, anyway, not a whisper from the old comics man, Bell, either. Geronimo's art was pretty solid overall. Too bad this is the only time we see him. Some of these Philippine artists from this era can be hard to find info on. I can't find a thing anywhere about this guy in English. Panel callouts gonna steal page one panel four's skeletal narrator from Max, and I also dig page five panel three where the wounded Okada is being decorated with the wounded captain looking on. Just really dig the background details of the soldiers' meager possessions on the battlefield. Yes. We've seen this exact story at least once before in this series. But again, this is yet another example of how this issue seems to be shaping itself up to be a great choice for a new reader to start with. That goes a long way with me. War stories with a weird twist and a hint of the supernatural that may or may not be true is a definite cornerstone of weird war tales. And this is a very well-executed and, ex and concise example of the specimen. No space is wasted in the storytelling. We got very clear, but not at all flavorless art, all hosted by an intriguingly drawn and appropriately grim skeletal soldier. You shall steal nothing from me, Rich. Ha! For my art callouts, I'll go with page two, panel three. The incredible scene of battle that awaits Okada when he emerges, as well as the very interesting choice of perspective on page three, panel four, with Okada's troops on the move. That one gives me Joe Kubert vibes. It feels like a framing choice he would make. Also, on page four, panel four, 
Okada proves that cool guys don't look at explosions as he carries his injured captain back to relative safety through an absolute maelstrom of enemy fire. And page six gives us a lovely scene of pastoral peace on the Japanese home front in panel one before sending us off with a superbly rendered reappearance of our host aha, in panel five. We are chugging along just fine so far, troops. However, I gotta say, as Rich intimated, the old man comic spell was at least lightly jostled by the breeze of the uh, coloring used for Okada and his cohorts. But enough about that. Good story. We'll take a little break from the narrative here and move on to the letters page known in this series as the APO Weird War Tales office. Linus Sabalas strikes again. I mean, <laughs> you go look at the letters pages from all these comic books and you certainly see what Joe Orlando was talking about. It always seems like it's the same four guys <laughs> writing constantly to fill up the APO Weird Wars. Weird War Tales page. Linus Sabalas says, Dear Joe, I'm sure you've heard the old complaint that it's the same old plot before, but it's time to add two more stories to the list. In number 38, both Jack Olick and George Kashtan came up with con contributions to the genre. Olick's was Born to Die, and Kashtan's was, of course, the Renegade Dogface. Kiko Redondo's art on his contribution was all right, but as for Jack Sparling's artwork, I've got to agree with the comments on the letters page. It's <laughs> the return by Oleg and E.R. Cruz was the top story of the issue. Though not as weird as the other stories, it had an original plot and superb art. Of course it's an original plot. It's a true story. The Man Who Would Be God was another Oleg masterpiece, although I would have tagged a different ending onto it. Since the existence of humans depended on the God, his death meant the end of human life, except for Shamar's. I still can't figure out why some people don't like Jess Charlemagne's art. Agreed. The only thing wrong is his superfluous edition of human flesh. Yeah, what's wrong with that? Linus Sabalas, Laval, PQ, Canada. I don't have too many uh, conflicts with this letter here. Uh, the, I, do, I will say I think I picked Born to Die to be my favorite story of uh, that issue, though, but not a bad letter overall. All right, and for my spotlighted letter, I'm going to read one from a kindred spirit by the name of Carl Henderson from Los Angeles, California. It starts off like this. Dear Joe, if memory serves, Weird War Tales number 38 opened up a new pathway for your fine magazine, and it's one I hope you follow regularly. I am speaking, of course, about The Man Who Would Be God by Jack Olick and Jess Jodleman. As far as I can remember, it's the first barbarian sword and sorcery war story you've ever done in your mag, and it was a brilliant first step. Debatable, I interject, but still kindred spirit here, so I go on with his letter. The script was one of Olick's best, and that's natural because he always produces his best material when he's dealing with a far-off century. He may be living in the past, but he has a wonderful ability to let his fans join him there. And Jodleman did his usual fine job on the art. I was surprised to see one of the letters in the APO department disparaging his work. Huh. I've enjoyed almost every story he's done, and the barbarian genre seems particularly suited to his big brawny men and lusty wenches. Fun stuff. Agreed. I don't know where you are planning to take this concept from here, but I trust you won't abandon it. I would be quite pleased to see Barbarian Battle Tales on the newsstand or some such. And I think some other readers would be too. Yeah, one of them is me. So Joe's response here is, frankly, we lean more towards savage swordsman stories, but we suspect that both will stay in the drawer for a while, which disappoints both Carl and I. Imagine an alternate reality where both of those series took off and... Rich could be like, I ain't covering that because all it is is fantasy stuff. <laughs> but I would have every damn issue, all right? So, APO Weird War Tales office out of the way. We're going to jump into the next actual story in the issue. And folks, I'm taking this one because I'm a little excited about it. It's called 
The day after doomsday, the year 700 after the bomb, part two. That's right. It's eight pages long. Script is just like last time by Sheldon Mayer and art is by the awesome Alfredo Alcala. Synopsis of this second chapter goes like this. The first three pages of this story are a recap from last time. We're not reading it, so either go back and re-listen to that part of WWT42 or rely on your memory like you used to have to for old-time radio serials. And, uh, yeah, if you're using your memory for those, um, it's probably time for your pills. All right, so when last we saw our heroes, the lad had vanished under a bush into a hole in the earth while being pursued by two enemy troops. Investigating, Barry found a man-made shaft with a metal rope inside. At the lad's encouragement, Barry follows, but drops his quarterstaff into the darkness. Actually, it was a buck and a quarterstaff, but I'm not telling him that. Robin Hood, Dappy, 1958, you're welcome. And, and believe me, folks, I'm friends with Rich. I've heard every line from every Looney Tunes recited from memory more often than you'd think. So, Back to the story. The side tunnel that the lad and Barry reach has metal doors only halfway down the shaft. Barry is amazed when the lad casts away the darkness with another magical fire stick, using it to light a candle. The lad's name is Jack of Chelsea, and he leads them to a strange cobweb-filled chamber. An askew sign he cannot read says, Lacey's, aisle four, canned goods, groceries, preserves. Jack shows Barry how to open one of the strange iron tubes to get to the delicious beans inside. Ah, beans, an amazing place. And the warriors of Weehawken stay away because they believe it to be haunted. Barry is incredulous watching Jack effortlessly ride some strange, narrow, two-wheeled contraption at an unbelievable speed. Barry tries, but cannot master the magic required to do the same. There are statues all around as well, showing how the ancients used all their strange objects. Outside, the soldiers are still looking for Jack and Barry. Approaching the entrance, one trips on a vine that knocks over a pile of cans in the chamber. Intruders! Jack grabs a nearby statue and vanishes into an alcove marked dressing room. It's part of his ploy to protect his home. When Jack emerges, Barry is stunned to see that he is a she! Jackie, actually, wearing a pink gown. With no time to explain, she runs off to lure the enemy away. But Barry cannot sit idly by and do nothing. He, too, returns to the surface, and time to see the soldiers closing in on Jackie with plans to sell her at the Emperor's palace. Furious, Barry pulls a knife and charges to her defense. But Jackie had had a plan, and Barry ruined it. He activated the trap meant for the soldiers and was rewarded with a spring-loaded sapling across his head. When Barry awakens, the soldiers and Jackie are gone. And that's it again. The adventures of Barry of Bleecker Street are to be continued in WWT 44. You gotta be kidding me. This story has been so good. I, I'll, I'll, let, uh, I'll let Rich do a little killjoy and I'll dive into my, um, my uh, C&C here. Here you go. Actually, it's a buck and a quarter quarter staff, but I'm telling him that. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, the places we shall travel and the killjoys I shall unleash 700 years after the bomb, right? What are the expiration dates on those beans? And how about rubber rot on those bike tires? Never mind the tire pressure. <laughs> okay, so that segues right into my CNC. Because, you know, I write the scripts later and I can make it seem natural. I'll say I, for one, enjoy what I call the Thundar principle of having stuff from centuries past still somehow intact enough to be recognized or even used by the wanderers of the futuristic wasteland in question. 
Is it even close to realistic? Nope. But is it more fun than just having everything replaced by vegetation and dust? Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> but on to the story at hand. I know this series is new to the whole continuing story thing, but the first three pages of an eight-page story being all recap material seems a bit of a waste. Still, it is a good recap, and with new and excellent drawings as opposed to lazy reprints of the previous images. So Alcala got paid, and any kid who picked this up at the newsstand isn't left in the dark, so I'll allow it. As for callouts, well, all of the art is great, really, but I'll go ahead and pick page four, panel four's excellent perspective shot of Barry and Jack shimmying down the elevator shaft to start with. Page five, panel five, gives us a really good shot of our duo making camp in the suspiciously well-preserved shop, and I got a kick out of would-be bicyclist exclaiming, I know not the magic! on page six, panel four, where he's fallen off the bike. However, on page seven, panel five, with the reveal of Jackie, it seems that Jackie has grown about a foot since putting on that dress. Maybe it came with heels? Wouldn't explain the lengthening of her arms, though. Uh, well, a girl's gotta have her secrets. On page eight, as we said in the synopsis, Barry screws everything up again. I freaking love this one. Overly indulgent recap stuff aside. Most of my comments from last time about wanting to withhold overall judgment until the story is complete hold true. So I'll simply point out two panels. Page five, panel three of the dust and webs in the long abandoned Lacey's. And page eight, panel four is classic damsel in distress stuff. The stunned soldiers looking over their shoulders and the menacing dagger in the foreground that Barry is holding. I'm still engaged. Will Barry rescue Jackie? Tune in next time for all the action, adventure, and intrigue. And it's my turn, so I'll just keep on going. Voyage into Limbo. Three pages. Script by George Cashdan. Art by Bill Drought. The periscope of a U-boat spots a strange craft coming into view. Captain Hans Corner sees his favorite target, an American hospital ship. You bastard. But everyone else that peers through the scope only sees an ancient Dutch sailing vessel. Regardless, his orders to attack are obeyed. The captain has no mercy, not even for the wounded. Two torpedoes are fired. Corner watches the torpedoes through the periscope and is amazed when they immediately circle back, destroying the sub on impact. The Capitan is the lone survivor. The ancient craft his crew had seen throws him a line and reels him aboard. Her seamen are dressed as pirates, and a fierce white-bearded man with a black cap addresses him. The gods created an illusion of a hospital ship to test you, for only the cruelest of the cruel may serve under me. Coroner's demands to be taken to the nearest German port are ignored, as the other crewmen gather around. Do not waste your time. This vessel never touches land. He captured us the same way he lured you. We are prisoners for life. Because the gods punished him for his cruelty by decreeing that he be forced to sail the high seas for eternity. And the flying Dutchman disappears into the mist. Killjoy in History Minute. I was originally thinking about talking about the Flying Dutchman here, but figured most of us have seen the Pirates of the Caribbean movies and have a pretty good handle on the legend. So instead, I'll shift lanes to talk a bit about the Battle of the Atlantic, and specifically two monuments in New York City that I posted about on the Facebook page back in April. Fans of the show know I'm a huge fan of visiting battlefields on monuments around the world. At Battery Park on the southernmost tip of Manhattan Island is the World War II East Coast Memorial. Erected by the American Battle Monuments Commission and dedicated by President John F. Kennedy in 1963, this memorial commemorates those soldiers, sailors, Marines, Coast Guardsmen, and merchant mariners and airmen who met their deaths in the service of their country in the western waters of the Atlantic Ocean during World War II. Its axis is oriented on the Statue of Liberty. On each side of the axis are four gray granite pylons upon which are inscribed the name, rank, organization, and state of each of the over 4,600 missing in the waters of the Atlantic. But as impressive as that is, 
It's the nearby American Merchant Mariners Memorial that is even more sobering. Dedicated in 1991, the monument is situated offshore from the north end of Battery Park, standing on a rebuilt stone breakwater in the harbor. The bronze figural group and boat are based on an actual historical event during World War II. The tanker SS Muskogee was sunk by a single torpedo on March 22, 1942, by German submarine U-123, 335 miles northeast of Bermuda. While sailing unescorted from Venezuela to Halifax with 67,000 barrels of crude oil, the ship sank in 16 minutes and 10 of her 34 crew managed to jump overboard and climb into rafts. U-123 questioned and photographed. The Muskegee's captain, William Betts, begged the U-boat's commander, Reinhard Hartigan, to bring them aboard. He was told, probably truthfully, there was no room. The rafts were left adrift and none of the survivors were ever seen again. SS Muskogee was one of the over 200 Allied merchant ships lost with all hands in the Battle of the Atlantic. It's estimated that 700 American merchant ships were lost and 6,600 mariners gave their lives in this global conflict. No wonder those that served in the US Merchant Marine during World War II are considered veterans. Incredibly, one of those German photos survived to be the inspiration for this stirring monument which is dependent on the ebb and flow of the harbor's tides. One figure struggling beside the boat is submerged each tidal cycle, a technical motif that compounds the work's emotional dynamic. At high tide, it's positively chilling, even more so as the tide slowly comes in and the figure's head disappears under the waves. Next time you're in New York City, go to Battery Park and pay your respects. Photos of the album. Comments and combinations. Another quick three-pager. Story was too bad, but yeah, sorry, the art didn't work for me. Even the red on yellow on blue title speech balloon was too garish. I think the explosion panel on page two would have been better served by omitting the too small croom sound effect entirely. But I do like the odd quadrilateral panels in the bottom half of the page that spice things up a bit. Even the panel of the Dutchman vanishing into the mist on page three is a bit boring. Bad way to end the book. I will admit that though the History Minute is aimed at World War II, there is not a single swastika to be seen in the story, and Captain Kroner does say he belongs to the Imperial German Navy. So, to be fair, this could be a World War I story. All right, so just to remind everybody, I don't read the History Minutes if I can avoid it before we record. So, once again, incredibly cool stuff that kind of outshines anything we're going to read in the comics. And uh, next time Gail and I go to NYC, we're probably going to check that out. So again, people, I, I hear this stuff for the first time, just like you do when we're sitting down. And that's some awesome stuff. So my CNC on the story, I'll say it's happening again, folks. I'm coming out as more positive overall than rich about an issue of Weird War Tales. Yes, the art by Bill Drought is more workmanlike than the lavishly styled illustrative efforts of its predecessors in these pages. But it tells the story extremely well in the pittance of a page count provided. Overall, I'd admit this is that, that this entire affair has more of a gold key comics vibe than a DC comics feel to it. And maybe that's why I'm inclined to give it more slack. Listeners may have picked up on the fact that I am an unabashed enjoyer of classic gold key comics, but I would still submit that the work here is more dynamic and engaging than most folks out there in fandom like to say when they talk about gold key. On page one, panel two, let me just say I got a kick out of the periscope with word balloons approaching its target, but panels three and five really caught my eye with their circular subsite shapes and the change in the sighted ship's shape from one view to another, or one viewer to another. On page two, panel three, I appreciated the watery panel border used around the sub. And while I agree it's not exactly exciting, I like the final shot of the Flying Dutchman on page three, where it says the end beneath the back end of the ship. Okay, fine. We also get Burt Ward to say holy expository endings about the word balloons up above. But for me, it all worked to sell the story in the three pages allotted to it. Does this story gel with the style of the rest of those in this issue? Not at all. 
but that's also why I approve of its presence here. Tying in a theme here, people, as an example issue of the series. It lets readers know that an anthology often features a wide variation of styles. And I like the choosing of the most cruel nature of the curse, which also does well to represent this series and its message. So that's my that's my opinion of the final story. That's the story content of the issue. So as you may have figured out, we're going to move on to our spotlighted ads in this issue. And I'll kick it off. I'll say I was tempted to call out the ad for the Buyer's Guide to Comic Fandom because it's just historically important and cool. But in the end, a sentimentality forced me to go with this full page ad for a Saturday morning TV lineup that I actually think I remember. It's a full page ad with a bunch of panels representing the individual shows and their placement in the Saturday morning timeline for the CBS Saturday programming. So at eight o'clock up top, you've got Pebbles and Bam Bam. So we're in that period where the Flintstones now have like spin-off cartoons. I'm not sure how long Pebbles and Bam Bam lasted, but I know I saw it. Bugs Bunny and Roadrunner Hour comes at 8.30. Scooby-Doo, Where Are You at 9.30. Shazam Isis Hour takes us from 10 to 11. And at 11 o'clock, you got the Far Out Space Nuts, which I'll talk about at the end here. 11.30, you've got the real ghost, or you've got Ghostbusters, not the real Ghostbusters, which I never saw until much later in life. So I must have been outside playing by now, which also, you know, explains why I don't remember Valley of the Dinosaurs at noon that well, even though it looks right up my alley. Fat Albert was at 12.30, but likely beforehand he rotated around because I do remember Fat Albert. And then there's something at one o'clock called the CBS Children's Film Festival. But again, I was long since outside screwing around by then. So that's the ad. We've got a picture of it. It's it's really freaking gorgeous. And just I'll say I'll go on to my commentary I've written in the script here because I really could keep going on. But I know I would have been four years old when this lineup was on the air. But I have clear memories, as I said, of the Shazam Isis Hour, and I have always conflated my memories of the Far Out Space Nuts with the Lost Saucer, another Sid and Marty Croft show, by the way, which starred Jim Neighbors and Ruth Buzzy, that also apparently aired in 1975. I mean, maybe my memory is better than I think for Saturday morning shows anyway. So I've got some links here that will hopefully provide uh, you guys over on the Facebook page and whatnot for the Far Out Space Nuts intro and the Lost Saucer intro. So this ad took me back. It's the first one chronologically that hit actual memories from my, my, my freaking childhood. So we're in it, people. We're in the era where things are just going to start hitting the nostalgia button hardcore for me. So there's my ad. Rich, what do you got? Yeah, your ad is actually pretty neat because it's it's like actually it's like a two-page centerfold in the comic. So you look at this ad, it's just like like what you just said. If you want the whole nostalgia factor, if it wouldn't deface the comic book, you're almost slightly tempted to kind of like tear it out and tack it up on the wall of your cubicle. <laughs> that is an awesome ad. But I did not select that ad, obviously. On the inside front cover, we have Heroes in Action. Heroes in action move and sound like real combat heroes. 17, the bravest looking, best moving combat heroes in the world. Set them in the rugged remote control stands and push the action lever. Your heroes and action figures make gunfire noises as you move them into action. Start collecting them all and for heavy artillery firefights and get these exciting two-man action teams. Mortar squad, machine gun crew, and anti-tank team. Command them, collect them. Take command of the 17 action men that move. So you have 17 different muscle-bound U.S. soldiers. And how about that? Three of them are black. In sleeveless tunics mounted on what passes for rocks. They all have some manner of weaponry. The two-man machine gun crew, 
motor squad and anti-tank team are portrayed in side panels. The main part of the ad is a kneeling soldier firing an M3 grease gun with complete with motion lines on the torso and a huge finger coming from off page on the action lever. The artist thing sucks. <laughs> it's that campy 1970s block font where it doesn't use military stenciling. I probably saw these at a toy store, but I never had one. Vietnam is over, kids, but you still got to watch out for those damn commie ruskies. <laughs> so there you go. And when I saw that ad, it's like right when you open the book, I'm like, well, I know what Rich's ad is going to be. So I just carried on from there. And then, boom, you know, got hit right in the face by that Saturday morning ad. But I, as soon as I saw that, I was like, mystery solved. So even before I saw the script. So that's it, people. The stories, the ads, we've talked about them. The issue is done. So we're going to move on to our little summary section. I'm saying a lot of S words in this episode, and I'm not too great at it. So enjoy that. The section is called Got Any Last Words. Another fun one brought to you by Orlando & Co. From the cover to the ads with yet another to-be-continued story sprinkled in for good measure? How did we get so lucky? My history minute rebounded voyage into limbo a touch. Again, I struggled to pick the gold medalist here, but I think I have to go with the non-racist way Oleg Andrano addressed the Japanese tale of bulletproof. For my last words, I gotta say, Bleecker Street Barry carries the ball, folks. Will he fumble it just before the end zone? Will the next installment even get us to the end zone? Why is Max doing something that sounds like the teaser segment? And how is he using something like a sports metaphor? <clears throat> so, yeah. I enjoyed the living and non-living heck out of this issue. I was tempted to pick Voyage into Limbo as my as my fave out of pure misguided gold key comic solidarity, but come on. Barry gets the gold in an issue that was for me full of glitter this time around. So that's it, folks. That's the issue. But the episode's not over yet because we're going to move on to the little social part of the show part where we check in with our readers, we blab about other stuff, we look at emails, we look at social media. It's called the Dead Letter Office, and Rich has something to say at the top of it here. Uh-huh. I added the infamous Count Dante ad to last episode's album Late, mocking the fact that we would never officially cover it because, you know, everybody else in the world has. Ranger Gord came back at me, upset that he'd never know the world's deadliest fighting secrets. I jokingly responded that I didn't see an expiration date on the ad's coupon. Copy it, fill it out, and send it in. And please tell us if he gets a reply. Challenge accepted. To be continued, folks. <laughs> Don't let us down, Richard Gordon. <laughs> Bill Hume and John Anarino created two cartoon books that were printed in Japan in 1953 solely for the American occupation forces. And I found Baby-san, a private look at the Japanese occupation. And when we get back home from Japan, in a used bookstore several years ago in Salt and Malay, my father-in-law spent some time in Japan during Korea, and I pulled these books out when he visited so he could have a chuckle. Baby-san has a splash of 50s sexism and racism in it, but both are really cool finds. I, boast, I posted about them on the FB page, and Jonathan Kruger reached out. Fascinating. Would love to see the inside pages if possible. I have a few things like this on display at our Forgotten Heroes Historical Research Museum. After I obliged him with seven screenshots, he continued. All I can say is, wow, I can't imagine people allowing these cartoons today. This is fascinating. I would love to display this at our Forgotten Heroes Historical Research Museum here in Kitway, Zambia. Our museum is dedicated to articles like this that were shown during the war. Thank you so much for sharing. I know our younger generation would be extremely interested to see this. I could spend hours talking with our visitors about all these cartoons. As a matter of interest, I actually lived in Osaka, Kyoto, and Nara, Japan for seven years, working there as a missionary from 1991 to 1998. Best wishes from Kitwe, Zambia. You know, 
I know this is 2023 and all, but I still find having a fan in Africa freaking amazing. <laughs> These books are actually still available online if anyone is interested. I know this because Bill Hoom did a third book in 1954 called Baby Sounds World, The Human Slant, Ooh, that I bought on eBay for 20 bucks yesterday. So yeah, had to get the complete set, folks. Oh my. <laughs> Heck of a heck of a kicker at the end there, <laughs> but yeah, dude. Uh, as far as like having someone who actually listens to us on the continent of Africa, I gotta mention as I get into the social media stuff here. I was talking on Discord with um, some of our podcasting buddies and Paul Hicks from the faraway continent of Australia. Does that count as a continent? Yeah, right. Uh, my geography is bad. <laughs> it's a it's it's full of poisonous things. Um, so he said he visited the United States recently. He went to Heroes Con down south, and he was on a panel about podcasting. And they asked each presenter or each person on the panel about a podcast they particularly enjoyed. And he singled out mentioning us at Heroes Con. <laughs> so, so, man, it's just like, yeah, uh, mind is mind is blown that we have people from all over the globe that would take time to listen to us or even darken people's doorsteps with the mention of our name. It's just cool. And I don't know what to say about it or do about it because I don't handle positive feedback very well. So uh, moving on to social media stuff. This Dead Letter Office is mostly focused on uh, our episode 49, which covered Weird War Tales number 40. And people on Facebook, Twitter, God knows where we'll be next, or at the same time, Threads, Blue Sky, all these other social media things. Chris Lydon stopped by. Siskoid, at Siskoid on Twitter, uh, from Siskoid's blog of Geekery and the Fire and Water Podcast Network and about 100 shows over there, stopped by. Our good buddy, Tim DeForest. Aya Voss, now... I know I'm saying at least the first name wrong, so please chime in if you want to correct me. It's spelled E-I-A, and then V-O-S for Voss. Billy D. from Magazines and Monsters stopped by. Clinton Robison of Coffee and Comics and Fan Film Fridays and the recently returned Days of High Adventure podcast where he talked about Dagar the Invincible from Gold Key. Gold Key Comics, baby, all right. Luke Giaconetti from the Earth Destruction Directive stopped by as well. Also, over on Gmail, and yeah, I'll mention Redbubble at the end, I guess. What's the point? Over on Gmail, where you can write to us at weirdwarriorspodcast at gmail.com. I'll start off with Bucky749 wrote in and had this to say. Great episode. And the way you guys tell the stories really brings fun to the stories. I have to say my favorite is the one based on a true story. And my second favorite is the alien vampire. <laughs> also, have either of you guys seen a cartoon called Don Coyote about the adventures of a coyote uh, and his panda sidekick? Have a great month. And have you have you guys ever played the Filsinger Legends of Wrestling card game? And I'll just say, I looked up the cartoon. It sounds like something I would have loved. I've never seen it. I've played a lot of collectible card games because I used to sell the things. So I've played tons of obscure, silly card games, things that I could barely even remember. But I know I never played the Legends of Wrestling card game. So sorry, you got us on both of those. And uh, I'll let I'll let I'll let Tim, yeah, I'll let Rich read a pretty cool letter we also got from another good buddy of the show. Tim DeForest sounds off. Didn't bother me that the skeleton soldiers on the cover were using out-of-date weapons for the year the war ended. They were probably the weapons they were using when they were originally when they originally got killed, and I've been fighting as ghosts for three or four years. If you ran into a Revolutionary War ghost, for instance, it wouldn't be surprising to see him using a musket. It's like the old saying goes, every time you get dressed, remember that if you die, that's your ghost outfit forever. Okay, I'm going to pause in the letter and say, that is a super solid point to Tim. 
post, you know, raise a glass, the Tim DeForest, lo- love the love the breakdown of the cover there. Maybe you should just bring you on to the show. Replacing my punk ass. Anyway, <laughs> I also really like the art in Back from the Dead. I was a little more bothered than you two by how obvious the supposed twist ending was. Anyone who didn't figure out that the two soldiers were ghosts before that last panel wasn't really trying. In Soldier from Space, I was a little bothered that the alien apparently spoke fluent German. Perhaps he had a translator device in his suit or something. I don't know why I'm bothered. I know that short science fiction stories often cheat on the problem of language to move the story along. I'm not bothered, for instance, that pretty much every alien in the Star Trek universe speaks English. But for some reason, it stood out to me this time. When Max and Rich disagreed about Estrada's artist issue, I was reminded of the tale from a few issues earlier in which the GI and the Japanese soldiers spent decades fighting each other on a small island, only briefly making peace to fight off an invading alien, then returning to fighting. I pictured you two engaging in open combat over Estrada's art, making peace to record another episode, only to have combat break out again when you have to talk about another Estrada illustrated story. Yeah, tune in. We'll see. <laughs> it would be tragic for the two of you, but potentially very entertaining for you listeners. Thank yeah, you, Tim. <laughs> but I don't know about combat. I get tired very easily these days. But if, if it was like combat, like Rich and I dragging out the NES or the SNES and him just beating the crap out of me at F-Zero or at Rampart, Every single time we play, yeah, it would be entertaining for everybody because, you know, but even though I know he's going to beat me at those games, uh, I'd still play him. So, hey, maybe we'll open a Twitch channel where Rich just trounces me in old SNES, SNES games all the time when we find the spare time. So our final letter at weirdwarriorspodcast at gmail.com this time around is from our good buddy Jason Zeller, and he writes in to say, Thank you guys for calling out the Creature Commandos trade paperback. It was one that I had picked up a few years ago when they did their initial printing and was so glad that they were reprinting it. I hope people get a chance to pick that up and rediscover those cool characters. I like the tit for tat you guys had in this episode and was curious whether Max was going to come back after the podcast break. Never take that for granted. <laughs> oh, listening to that episode you know, when it came out, I'm like, man, we totally missed it. We totally should have had me come back from the break. So, yeah, so um, Max is gone. So I guess it's just me now. So anyway, cover details. <laughs> oh, well, next time. <laughs> well, we'll save that for when you actually have to do it. So Jason goes on to say, the cover to this issue was pretty cool overall. I think the best part for me was the soldiers in the background and how they were coming through the mist that was swirling around them. Yeah, whole thing was cool. These types of stories like Back from the Dead never get old to me as the dead never seem to realize they are dead and are stuck in an endless cycle trying to make it out of the loop. Sounds like modern life to me. They seem to be stuck in these stories, but also have that foreboding sense that something is wrong. But it's very difficult to figure out exactly what is wrong until the shocking revelation at the end. I was also curious why they had some kind of a movie theater set up in the middle of a war zone. It seems like that would be something that would be more in an area where there's not an active battle going on. The way I initially read the story was that the three GIs that went into the castle that they followed were actually alive and discovered their bodies and were leaving and did not respond because our two protagonists were ghosts. But the confusing part was the way those GIs' faces looked in which they look like they were the dead ones. And I know I called that out in the episode. The artist decided to make the surviving people look like dead people, maybe to try to throw the reader off from the so-called twist ending. But eh, Jason goes on to say the last Man on Earth story was actually pretty decent, in which anyone would consider ending their life as their way of life is completely over forever versus the idea of trying to survive at all means possible. So it was a good philosophical story. I do like the slightly upbeat ending in which he gets up and is ready to continue surviving, being hopeless and giving up. Uh, again, agreed. That was one of the first times that Day After Doomsday was like a huh, slight uptick for, for me anyway. 
And then Jason gets to, I love the warrior breed story about Deborah Sampson and did vaguely remember something about her dressing as a man and going unnoticed for quite some time until her injuries had her examined by a doctor and her secret was revealed. But I thought it was a great story in history and I'm glad they adapted it here. It was unfortunate and I immediately caught that too, Rich, that 1774 didn't quite add up to the beginning of the story. I really enjoyed the history minute you did, Rich, that told us of her actual heroic story. And again, people, half the reason to tune in, if there's something behind the story that has real history behind it, Rich and his OCD are not going to let him avoid telling you about it. So it's educational, technically. We should probably get a tax break for the show. Jason goes on to say... I didn't really like the soldier from space. And then I stopped reading the letter because to hell with that. No, um, he says overall, uh, but did enjoy the twist ending of the aliens needing human blood as their sustenance to survive. Of course, I didn't understand how he expected to harvest human blood without killing living beings, which were his orders. Eh, details. And But Jason redeems himself and says, great ad highlight, Max. That was by far my favorite one using the physio-mental powers of the ninja. I like how you spent so much time talking about it. That's the first I've ever been told that. And it certainly was an intriguing ad and seemed to stand out from the others. I can't recall ever seeing it before. I know as a kid, I always enjoyed the idea of learning the art of invisibility. Yeah, yeah me too. I'd still like it. Even better, this ad claims that you can fight even while sleeping. Now those are some powers, yeah. Yeah, man, the physio-mental powers of the ninja ad, huge favorite of mine. Go back to our episode, check it out again. So that's it. Just, I just want to throw one thing back at uh, back at uh, Jason real quick. You were asking before about the uh, setting up a movie theater in the middle of a war zone. You have to remember, this is the this is the Arden, the, the, you know, that whole thing that they were talking about, the Brave, the Bold. Uh, story at the Flash and the Blackhawks and everything. This was a quiet section of the front. This is where they sent brand spanking new divisions that just got deployed to, you know, you know, break them in kind of thing. And it was a surprise attack. You know, so I totally believe that like a mile or two back from the front, they would they could have set up like a movie theater or something like that. And so I thought it was an excellent, a nice little touch, actually. <laughs> See, there you go. The history minutes keep coming. This is what it's like, people. This is what it's like to be sitting in a room, even a virtual room with Rich. All right? The historical data is just going to happen. The stories are going to come, and you're going to learn something. As opposed to sitting with me, where you're mostly going to hear expletives or profanity or something. So, you know, it's it's, it's a balance. All right? <laughs> so, that's it. That is the Dead Letter Office. You can also... Go and visit us at redbubble.com, search for the Weird Warriors podcast, and get our awesome logo designed and drawn by Bill Walco of the Hero Business on anything you can get on any of those online stores where they put people's designs on stuff. Believe me, it can happen. You can do it. Even I've done it. That's how easy it is, okay? So, Dead Letter Office is closed. Episode is pretty much over, people, but what's that? I think Rich has a teaser in mind for the next episode. Weird War Tales 45. Combat camera. Waste not, want not. The conclusion of Barrier from Beaker Street. Maybe this time? Who knows? You'll find out when we do. And for a what I'm going to call a retro retroactive history. I saved this for the end of the show to give it the moment it deserves. While crafting Rod Serling's remembrance post for the Facebook page, I realized his date of death, June 28th, 1975, was very close to where we were in covering the Weird War Tales comic book. A quick check confirmed that issue 42, last issue, was the first one to be released after he died at the age of 50 in Rochester, New York. Five packs a day, non-filters. That'll do it to you, folks. I visited his grave in Interlochen, New York, two years ago to coincide with our Twilight Zone special mission back in episode 15. Photos of the album, of course. We leave you with his powerful ending monologue from the episode Death's Head Resisted, 
where an SS captain pays a fond, nostalgic journey to Dachau after the war, but is accosted by the ghosts of the Jewish prisoners he murdered. All the Dachau's must remain standing. The Dachau's, the Belsen's, the Buchenwald's, the Auschwitz's, all of them. They must remain standing because they're a monument to a moment in time when some men decided to turn the earth into a graveyard. Into it, they shoveled all of their reason, their logic, their knowledge, but worst of all, their conscience. And the moment we forget this, the moment we cease to be haunted by its remembrance, then we become the gravediggers. Something to dwell on and to remember, not only in the twilight zone, but wherever men walk God's earth. Stop whatever you're doing right now and raise a glass to the master of the genre. Make war. No more.